Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. I'm joined on this episode by Fei Wu. Fei is the very embodiment of a modern media maker. She was a podcasting pioneer, having launched her Phase World podcast in 2014. That podcast has gone on to have well over 200,000 downloads. Shortly thereafter, she established herself on YouTube with a monetized channel that has nearly 25,000 subscribers and more than 100,000 views per month. In 2019, Faye produced and hosted a 10-episode documentary series, which is now available on Prime Video, called Faye's World, an intimate look into the lives of a diverse group of business leaders and creative professionals. Having come to America from China as a teenager, Faye has carved out a life as a successful entrepreneur, mentor, and media maker. Most recently, Faye's been putting to use her skills and experiences to help inform and guide other media creators in the area of AI integration. It was a very fun and informative chat. I hope you enjoy it. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please do follow and share. Now on to my conversation with Fei Wu. Hello, Fei Wu. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hello, Michael. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really look forward to this conversation. I have been looking forward to this conversation, too, ever since our paths crossed. I believe it was on LinkedIn. And as you know, and as everybody listening to this podcast knows, the name of this podcast is Making Media Now. And what leapt out at me once you and I started communicating was you are the consummate media maker, particularly the consummate sort of 21st century media maker. You're a podcaster, you're a YouTube presence, uh, you've got your own media conglomerate, I'm going to call it, called Phase World Media. And I'm just really interested uh, around how you have adapted to the rapid changes in communications technology to produce media, not for just for yourself and for your audience, but also on behalf of your clients, uh, and and really getting a getting a sense of how you uh, got onto the path that you're on. So, before we start talking about the here and now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the path that you have taken. Where are you from, and uh, you know what uh, what are some of the significant milestones that led you to make the decisions that you've made? Yeah, for sure. What a great question, Michael. Thank you so much for the setup. I'm going to try to keep some of my answers shorter and to the point. So if there's any area you want to kind of dive in deeper, I, you know, you're more than welcome to do that. So originally I'm from Beijing, China. That's where I was born and raised. I was very lucky to have both parents to be uh, hardcore artists, in particular, my mom, you know, with the painting behind me that Michael can see right now. My oh, mom wow. is 71 and spent 40 years as a master artist at the Forbidden City in Beijing. And my dad was a calligrapher and they worked together. And it was so funny. It was certainly not a perfect marriage, but they share this core artistic theme and passion with each other. And that actually had a lot of impact on me to watch them live kind of a very unusual life. And I knew I always wanted to create. But the thing is, 
growing up as a kid, I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. And I wasn't even sure if I absolutely want to become artists like my parents. But I realized very early on, you know, as an only child, by the way, and growing up with a lot of other only child. And that means that, you know, after school, we're often by ourselves. So I remember recalling like setting up these quote unquote workshops where like storytelling workshops and I would just have like four or five friends in my living room, sometime in my bedroom, and would just tell stories. And a lot of kids back then said, oh, that was the best thing ever. This is so much better than in school. And so I, I kind of just see that theme, frankly, all the way through my school years, very much into college. And also when I had full-time jobs for 10 years before I founded my company, FaceWorld, and I just kept storytelling as part of my core, mm -hmm. even though, you know, as you probably know, in the corporate world, especially in Boston, New England, it was not always the easiest thing to do. It was not always widely accepted or appreciated, but uh, that's something that I always wanted to do. And that's how I started my podcast in 2014. Yeah, to feed those two parts of your personality. Growing up uh, in a household that not just valued the arts, but were practitioners for the arts, how did that come to shape how you saw the world and, and maybe what your ambitions for the role that you would play within the world? I think it has a lot to do with the way I envision or even the way practically how I run my business today. So that's a great question because, uh, you know, sometimes through these conversations, you start to see the dots connecting mm -hmm. uh, that they did not before. So, for instance, my mom, as someone who was working as a full-time artist, I was literally reflecting upon this with several friends very recently. Uh, my mom had the privilege to work as a master artist at the Forbidden City, which is known to be a very world, you know, a recognized museum where the emperors and emperors used to live. Um, but, you know, she had a job painting every day. And for me to witness world-class artists, we had, you know, like, literally like presidents from around the world, queens and kings, and would travel to the Forbidden City, shake hands with mom, admire her artwork, and started to see like, wow, art has like a very international appeal, and it's not bounded by languages. And that was very fascinating to me. But beyond that, mom always had this passion of creating something on her own. So she started way before I was born. Um, so between the age of 25 to 35, she was the first, not just woman, the first person ever to design these 413 characters for a very, very famous historic Chinese novel called Dreams of the Red Chamber. And, you know, this novel is, I think, at least hundreds of years old. And it was text only. So she painted and designed just out of her own brain and you studying and all that. So um, that was really wild. And to watch her being on TV, on radios back then, and to really delve in deep, maybe this is the part we can, if you want to, like, how did mom do that? Not just time-wise, but to have a budget also yeah. uh, for her own creative projects. How then later on, she has so many patrons, which is, I think, I wish more artists again, get to see and witness that patrons and that that's why I work with so many brands right now that support my work. Um, that was really interesting. Mom is definitely a pioneer. Yeah. And it, it does make one wonder about that hereditary component around that, that artist entrepreneur hybrid that you certainly embody. What were the uh, circumstances of your coming to the U.S.? 
Uh, the circumstances was, uh, my dad was not at all a fan of this. And I was <laughs> 16 when I looked into schools and literally I turned 17 weeks later, I was on a plane with several other kids, no adult supervision and okay. flew to Boston. And so my mom was very supportive of that. And back then between the exchange rate, it's kind mm -hmm. of, it's just phenomenal. E exchange rate is like close to nine RMB would equal to a dollar. So it was really impossible for most Chinese family to even fathom like sending one child overseas. Mm -hmm. And it was my mom's retirement account. And I was young and I said, this is something I really wanted to do. And she said, well, that's what we're going to do then. And, you know, and then it just, it's incredible. Like it really, I was already respecting loving her so much then, but make me realize it, it is like a, a cold kaleidoscope just open, like the power of women and how she sees her daughter, not a mm -hmm. son, but daughter, I'm the only child, mm -hmm. and to have a life of her own. And right. uh, yeah, that was the, the story. <laughs> Were you coming to Boston, uh, Boston specifically to go to school? I did. So the actual school is called Freiburg Academy. It's actually in Freiburg, Maine. And oh, my sure. first I've been to stop... Freiburg. I've been to the oh, Freiburg yeah. Fair a couple of times. No way. Uh, <laughs> it's it's such, I've been there several times. And for us, like growing up in Beijing, to be able to play with like little wild animals, having like a fair about farms and animals, I cannot even comprehend like what a magical experience that was. Yeah, not exactly a metropolitan area. <laughs> not exactly. But you'll be surprised over the years how many more international students ended up there and the kind of impact and influence that we had. So was there already a community of international students there that that drew you there? It just seems like a fairly random place for somebody from Beijing to end up. Totally random. When I came here in 2000, it was not really a thing for somebody, not even undergrad, like somebody who was under 18 to come to the US. The system was very amateur. And you had these agencies, frankly, we didn't even know any of them was legit. Like, seriously, now in retrospect, it's like we could just be sent somewhere, who knows where and never Bit to of an act of faith. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it was good. There were other kids too. But basically, I I remember choosing the schools uh, was based on, you know, schools that are available. They showed us, I still remember, a couple of Massachusetts, one in Maine, and mm -hmm. one in Minnesota out of all places, right? There was like not really many that they recommended in California. I don't know why. So out of these schools, it was a group of kids, about 10 to 12. So frankly, it was really based on everybody's collective vision to as to where to send us because we're all under 18 it would be really awkward for me to be the only one to go to minnesota and mm -hmm. i also happen to have relatives in boston which is relatively close to maine sure. uh, it just came down to freiburg and it was absolutely the best decision ever size wise culture wise um it was a good fit um, lastly, international students at the time, I think 30, 40 of us, which was a really big deal. We're like the first wave of international students from all around the world. And nowadays you look around, it's like sometimes like private schools means like mostly Asian kids. Yeah. It was not the case for us. Yeah. And where did you end up studying in Boston? Northeastern. So at Northeastern. Great. Yeah, a computer science and math. Computer science and math. And then I know that you were you you worked in the corporate world for uh, at least a decade or so. And mm -hmm. what were you what were the nature of the companies you were working for and what was the nature of the work you were doing? Yeah, so for 10 years uh, from uh, the, actually, I think it's precisely from 23 to about 32, I worked at Sapient for six years, mm. uh, Digital Influence Group for about a year, and Arnold Worldwide for about mm. two years. Mm -hmm. I hope the math some somewhat adds up. Um, and the nature of- I'm the wrong of the guy to ask. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that's you're right. I think it's roughly about like, yeah, nine years or so. And uh, so at Sapien was tech consulting, business consulting. And that was really interesting because halfway through, so three years in, uh, you know, Sapien acquired Nitrol. So it became Sapien Nitrol. I had exposure to a lot of, I would say, like uh, Fortune 500, more e-commerce type of clients as opposed to just finance, just tech and kind of opened my eyes up and it became a project manager, producer for years. I was kind of known in the industry for that. I think I was a good producer, but the type of work didn't really give me a ton of energy. It drained me mostly, even though I was good at it. So something mm -hmm. I, I tell other people to keep in mind, what gives you energy, focus on that. Um, the rest are also advertising marketing firms. And that's kind of how I stood up my business to focus on marketing, uh, what I content marketing, what I can do for my own clients. What did you discover that you liked about helping clients uh, communicate either their product or their service? There are a lot of things I learned when I was working consulting, and there are a lot of things I have to unlearn now as an independent, as you know, as an entrepreneur, as a creator. Mm -hmm. So I think the good news with my uh, roughly ten-year corporate experience is a lot of structure. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of structure that anybody would ever need, you know, and spreadsheets and keeping track of things. And that later on actually gave me an edge because these days I work with creators and entrepreneurs and companies hire me because they say we'll never have to worry about going over budget or not finishing anything on time ever when working with Faye or Faye's World. And I think later on for me to learn as a creator, um, working with clients is really about there's a lot of empathy at play here mm -hmm. and to understand it's not just about who is the smartest the fastest who's the hardest working it is about what is that business problem we're trying to solve together and business often work with me and give me uh these research data of like we believe that our products are sell for these things and you go into the market and you actually see the comments left on you know on youtube for instance your blog you know the people what people would expect explain and kind of uh, put forward is a little bit different than what you have received on a marketing paper. So how do you make the two you know, match and how do you provide more value based mm -hmm. on what people are asking for? And what was the circumstances that inspired you to and then gave you the, the courage really to make the leap uh, from, you know, kind of a safe uh, position where you were an employee and you had all of the, um, uh, you know, you had all those benefits of being an employee. You're going to get a regular paycheck. You're going to have benefits, et cetera, et cetera, to going into the world of podcasting first, which I believe you did around uh, 2014, mm -hmm. uh, which was, you know, podcasting was pretty new then. It, it wasn't as ubiquitous as it is now by any means. Um, mm -hmm. Had you been exposed to podcasts a lot as a as a fan? And did you... Were you looking at anybody else and saying, oh, I think it's really cool what he or she did. I want to try to take that path. Yeah, I think uh, growing up, I always liked being first at something, uh, not just I don't just mean like do some, doing something really wacky, like things like I was not even close to being the, you know, getting into dating. I was probably last one to ever like even talk about having a partner, to be honest. Uh, certainly, you know, didn't attempt any drugs. What I mean by being first is that when there's fear, when there's uncertainty, and I know that I can sense something good could come out of that, or hmm. at least like a really good learning experience, I would 
I would go for it. I still remember being a kid of like waiting. We used to get like shots together. So in school at work and the people really unsure about that. It's so interesting. Even as an adult, people like take a few steps back. They're like, I'm not sure if I want to get a flu shot here at work. And I will be like, Hey, let's do this. You know, I'll be the first one, you know, let the nerves warm up on me. And, um, classic I think I early had- adopter. I'm an I'm an early adopter for sure. Uh, podcast is something that I feel like I had the urge to start because I felt like there's so many good conversations that are never captured. I feel like in the sort of in the boardroom or wherever I go into a sales meeting, I see these kind of very very structured, very predictable white men getting together using all these verbiage that really are not very meaningful or memorable, and people kind of gather huddle around that and sell big projects i i felt like wait a minute where's empathy where's storytelling um what what's interesting about that and yet you look around the young people to say one day i want to be like this guy and i knew i didn't want to so Mm. i had to carve out my own path so starting the podcast really is a very innocent way of to say like what is the conversation i want to have and want to capture just for me like if one day i have a i have a rough day which i do do that there's Sometimes, right? I go back to say, well, Matt Lindley is this incredible guy, went out, uh, probably recently retired from Google in Boston. And I said, I want to just hear his voice. Like, I'm having a rough day. He says something really brilliant. I'll go back to my own episode. So I did that early on. It's still something that I, I rely on. But you mentioned something else about leaving a stable job. I, I don't believe any job is inherently stable because that's a, that's a very wise observation. You know, even when I was, you went back in 20, uh, 2009, I remember. Uh, three years into my professional career, I remember boxes are being passed around and I saw nine to 10 people walk out, you know, and then just getting a, a meeting invite at 10 a.m. And I remember being so vulnerable because for me, honestly, I wasn't so worried about layoff if I weren't an international employee. I, I was relying on an H-1B without this visa. I could literally, I have to leave the country, leave my apartment behind everybody, every friend uh, behind and don't know when to return. That was my real fear. It wasn't just about losing a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of knew that coming. And of course, in the following years, I saw companies being merged. I saw my positions taken away and things like that. So I, I mean, I knew I had to get ready early. If I had the choice, I would have left corporate a long time ago, but I waited until two months after I received my green card. <laughs> so in starting the podcast, you you alluded to essentially you wanted to be able to create an environment to have the conversations that you yourself mm-hmm. uh, wanted to be able to listen to, or the, at least those types of conversations. So that's your c- content. What mm-hmm. kind of hurdles did you face from a kind of a technical standpoint? And what's your approach to sort of uh, tackling those hurdles, like teaching yourself what's necessary to become the you know audio engineer, the audio editor, etc.? Yeah, I used Audacity when I started mm-hmm. editing in 2014. Mm-hmm. These days, if you're listening to this, you can use Podcastle, you can record with Riverside, you can use Descript and edit text only. None of those tools existed back then. Right. Um, so I remember that I had, you know, Adobe Audition probably existed, GarageBand was there, but you were looking at very limited options and I did not know how to use any one of them. Um, I don't know, I, I sort of know what sounds good, but just with my naked ears, but I have zero training. So I said, what's the worst could happen? I would just edit the first episode to my best ability. And mm-hmm. I would watch these tutorials. I think Pat Flynn from Smart Passive Income was like giving out some tutorials, very limited editions. I was following these a couple of creators and I just 
edited my first episode. So I, I still, I mean, unlike other creators, I don't take down my earlier content, including people calling in literally on the phone to record something with me. Uh, I feel like those conversations were really worthwhile. And I want people to see the progression of how crazy like audio quality it was back then to what it is today. And that's kind of how I got started. There were a lot of hurdles because I remember just uh, tech stuff is one thing, but the fact that I did not have a community to be part of, right. that was a really big deal. I felt like I was kind of a very much a lone wolf editing it to it in the morning. Yeah. And then how did you feel like you were starting to make some traction? I mean, I know right now and in, in the data I have is probably um, it's probably outdated. But I know right now that uh, I read that your podcast has over 200,000 downloads. I hope my uh, my jealousy oh. isn't coming through too strongly. No, um, yeah, it's, and- it's fine. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. How did you know that you were starting to make the getting that groundswell of interest and support uh, mm-hmm. that was going to allow you to bring it in the direction that you wanted it to? Yeah. So first of all, I want to call out the fact that even though I started my podcast five years before I started my YouTube channel, mm-hmm. my YouTube channel now has probably close to 4 million views and uh, has driven a lot more business results for me. So even though it happened yeah, about five 25, years later. about 25,000 subscribers again. Yeah, yeah. So Impressive. I feel like that that has been more lucrative and, and growth wise has a much bigger potential for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, with that said, uh, what happened with podcasting, I will just admit probably this is kind of a universal thing is I kind of knew I did not want to be in front of the camera. I mm-hmm. still have my full-time job. I was pretty insecure about how I how it would sound, how it would look. I just want to be very transparent about that. So I didn't. And audio felt like safe still, even though, you know, voice is very intimate. So there's some reservations there. I did it. And a year later, uh, you know, in that in that year, uh, my partner Adam and we were just talking about like, will be some indicators. And mm-hmm. that, that we're growing. Like, we have no idea what those milestones even would look like. So views, downloads alone seemed a little dry. Like, okay, fine. How do we increase downloads? So that means we have to interview really famous people. Uh, we're really interesting people. So we had this like whiteboard, a corner of the whiteboard. I, I it's still, I still did not erase some of them. I should probably should take pictures now. I feel like there, there was a guy who worked as a sniper, literally at work. And I thought his story was so interesting. And then he's like, I don't want to be interviewed. The other guy is like a special force guy. That's kind of interesting. Some military guys. And then we have like really famous authors, wives. So it was like, you know, it was like the strategy was really interesting. So until one day I said, what if I actually go uh, reach out to somebody I admire within one year of releasing my podcast? So I reach out to Krista Tibbet from sure, On Being. Yeah. Like, On Being, right. Yeah, she is my absolute, I mean, she was like the North Star. She was the moonshot. And I reach out to her. Uh, I don't know what I did. I think I reached out to her on Twitter or something. And she said, yeah, I would love to. And uh, so I scheduled oh, that. you. Yeah, thank you. And that was 2015. I was at work. Uh, she had to reschedule that episode several times, many, many times. And I was working at Arnold. I s- only 30 minutes. And right before our show, it was very dramatic. The entire company's T1 Wi-Fi just went down. Oh, and you're I doing said, this at the, their, the work offices. Yeah, at work for 30 <laughs> minutes. Exactly. I would reserve a little office and, and just do this occasionally. Because like oftentimes, depending on what when the client, uh, when the guests are available. And then I remember just like taking a deep breath to say, it is whatever it is, it's meant to be. And then the Wi-Fi came back on minutes before the recording time. And I, I jumped on, I was just like completely melted. 
because she was someone I really, really wanted. And I had, I was such a new creator at the time and it was brilliant, but they gave me kind of insights into, well, if she can say yes, now who else can say yes? Yeah. And, uh, and then I, I build my business like months after that. So I started my, uh, I started face world January 1st, 2016. So a lot of things happened right before that. And phase world is really, as I said at the top of our conversation, it's this uh, amalgamation of its podcasting. It's the YouTube channel. Uh, you've got the academy where mm -hmm. you impart these skills, you know, to others. Uh, and I know that now you're also moving pretty aggressively into the area of AI mm -hmm. uh, to help people understand what it is and what it isn't, mm -hmm. um, which seems to change every three or four weeks uh <laughs> and also working with organizations that are making ai not just part of their offer um but you know part of their workflow etc when you're approaching whatever type of media that you're creating you just referenced the conversation with krista tippett what is your driver in the sense that what do you feel like you want to be presenting to the people that listen or watch you? Is it the conversations or do you consider yourself kind of an ambassador uh, for the technology or or the business that's being spoken of? Yeah, that's interesting. I think there's a little bit of a distinction between people I interview like Krista Tibbet or any guest on Face World podcast versus like a tutorial video I create on my YouTube channel for an AI technology or AI company. Yeah. So when it comes to like a personal interaction, I think about how to highlight that person or something, giving that person an opportunity to talk about something that she hasn't really had the chance before. I think with Krista, she's been the host. She's like, I feel like she's the, the voice of America, you know, maybe a certain niche group of America. But uh, I just hadn't at that point, hadn't really listened to a lot of conversations or interviews about her and talking about her origin stories. And I learned just tremendous amount of things in 30 minutes. Like and for, and for listeners who aren't aware of Krista Tippett, she has hosted, I, I believe she produces it, uh, a, a program that runs on NPR and NPR affiliates called On Being. And, you know, she she was probably one of the first broadcast personalities that I had ever heard of that would talk about kind of esoteric subjects, you know, and her niche, so to speak, has really exploded in the sense that she was really a pioneer for the mm -hmm. Brene Browns of the world. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, in, anybody in sort of the health and wellness and spirituality vein can really thank Krista Tippett. And uh, does she do you know she still uh, works out of Santa Fe? Uh, she I think she's in uh, Minnesota as well. Minnesota. Like, OK. Yeah. 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 Speaking of Minnesota, that's interesting, right? Like, it's <laughs> yes, one of those schools exactly. I would consider. Yeah. Yeah. So we have we have the message and we have the medium, and yeah. you know you work across multiple mediums, and and it sounds like you're sort of medium agnostic in the sense that you'll use podcasting, YouTube, um, mm -hmm. to have whatever type of conversation is going to avail the the guest and their message most successfully. Yeah, for sure. I think we, we talk about like story, storytelling centric and then platform or medium agnostic. And, and when I say it's interesting, like you ask about what is the storyline? And when, I, when we say story, we, we don't just mean by like movies and productions. And I know you mentioned documentary. That's something I attempted. And I have tremendous amount of respect for filmmakers having been, you know, having been you on had a the road 10 episode series on on Amazon Prime. Yeah, in 2019. I was, 
Yeah, 2019, I was nervous as hell. The whole thing was shot in late 20, like second half of 2018 and with a production team staying in Airbnb's weekend. We can talk about that if that's of interest. It uh, most certainly yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I can't wait. That's why I was like, feel like there's a very natural connection with someone like yourself, your show. Otherwise, without that experience, I can't really, I would be interviewing you. I, I can't possibly imagine there to be a connection about documentary filmmaking. And of course, as a result of that, that inevitably like i interview so many filmmakers on my podcast um so to answer your second half of the questions like how do i approach my like let's say ai tutorials and videos on my youtube channel these days we're working with uh, brands who provide the will create these software specifically for creators and small business owners they are my primary audience um on the channel is that it's so interesting. My uh, my friend and hairdresser, Emily, asked me the same question. I start answering with like cameras and equipment. She's like, no, no. Like, what do you actually think about? What do you write? How do you think about creating such content? So I think about like, if I, if I were the, you know, sitting there needing help, right? YouTube is a very teaching centric platform. Yeah. Like, why would people want to watch this video? And how do I stand out from, you know, millions of videos being uploaded every single day? Uh, is that I want to be kind of different and even opposite, dare I say. So videos these days are in very short forms, including tutorials. Like a lot of people go in one minute, I'll teach you this, to, you know, how to use this in three minutes. I'll show you how to go live. And I go, is it realistic to learn something in three minutes? Well, that's nice. I'm glad these videos exist. But what if I can be the full on no pause, no steps skipped type of tutorialist for mm -hmm. this particular video? So I will slow it down. I'll see in the comments people go, oh, thank God he didn't skip this because I have no idea how the other guy went from step A to B. And um, in my tutorial, sometimes I go, you know what? It's interesting. This is where they place the button. I'm not sure it's the best place, right? It really stopped me from my track of trying to get something done here. Wouldn't it be great of that? And then, and over time, I, I, because as a technologist and as a prior, previously as a programmer, I know how difficult it is to actually program something. So I'll actually give the audience another view of, you know what, this part is like a third party integration that it's actually outside of the control of the software trying to accomplish something you would prefer. Mm -hmm. So um, make it really conversational and then think in terms of series of content, not just one, but what happens after this. Uh, my partner is a pretty serious like pool player, which I have very little experience, but how do you plan the shots? How do you clear the table right, as a professional pool player? And that's kind of how I think about the content. How do they relate? Um, and so like, hopefully that, that opens up another can of interesting uh, questions and conversations. When you're having conversations uh, with creatives, let's just say, whether they're writers or filmmakers or broadcasters, um, podcasters, about the inclusion of AI, the integration of AI into their work, what type of um, enthusiasm and what type of resistance are you encountering? Yeah, there's definitely people can be totally polar opposite. And there are a right. lot of different conversations. So on one hand, if uh, a business is what we call the content based business, mm -hmm. so this business doesn't have to be like full time on YouTube, but you know, a software company really believe in organic content creation, blogs, webinars, the videos, we thrive in working with companies like that, as opposed to companies who solely believe in paid advertising and things like that, or TV ads. Um, so you know, the way that we start the conversation is to see, to understand realistically, 
where AI is. Um, so to do that, we need to be pretty, you know, elbow knee deep into the, you know, the sort of gen AI tools are out there. There's mm -hmm. a whole spectrum of them. And, you know, we don't stop short at ChatGPT, but there's AI voice, you know, you know, sort of AI, everything, AI graphics, you know, image generation uh, and video generation, audio editing for AI that we let them understand like what what's out there. And now what they do is, you know, they usually start with showing us the workflow of something in particular. You want to be very specific. This is how we currently edit our podcast. This is how we promote our like episodes on social media, where this is how we try to get more signups towards our webinars. Uh, and then the general answer is, yeah, it's a lot of work. We have to train multiple assistants, virtual assistants to do this. Things usually fall through. And mm -hmm. so we can show them how to actually automate part of the the you know whether it's uh social media content creation you know you can automate ideation research using ai but we also want to be very upfront about the human enabled and human verified content and where mm. human comes into play so showing them that now you can save 80 percent of the time uh, or less if needed you know for your from your assistance and you can be so effective with ai in this particular area that's what wins as opposed to the opposite of that doesn't work is these ai tools going to solve all your problems right it's going to save you a hundred percent of the time you don't have to do anything anymore it doesn't exist and giving people that expectation is what's going to make that process fail um, so it, it it sounds like at least at this stage uh with the with the uh inclusion of ai into things like workflows etc the the key is to be able to understand how best to implement AI to augment and make more smooth a process and a, and a delivery system, as opposed to, you know, it's not a plug and play that AI is going to sort of rebrand you and the AI mm -hmm. is going to create content that would otherwise have to spring from you use the word ideation, that that mm -hmm. human element. I'm curious, as the uh, the daughter of two artists whose art, you know, like in folks listening to this podcast aren't able to see the mm -hmm. elaborate and beautiful painting that is right behind you that your mom did. And when you look at a painting like that, I think of that sort of ineffable gift that your mom has that that sprang from a part of her that she probably can't even identify. So as the as the daughter of somebody with that type of artistic gift, when you hear about concerns within the artistic and creative community about AI is going to replace that, how does that how does that hit you? Yeah, it, first of all, it can't at all, right? So I'm I have the luxury to witness how she works mm -hmm. and to actually be up close to these paintings as opposed to like talking about it or just visualize it uh, or seeing the picture on Facebook or something. I'm up close and personal, so I know that this process cannot be replaced. In fact, we can just ask AI or you know whether it's ChatGPT, Dolly, or any of these like visual imagery, you know, generative AI to produce something like this. It simply can't. Um, what we we can also replicate is you know for instance these days i can feed an image into you know um you know tools such as pika and then say hey help me animate uh this character so it can do certain mm -hmm. things really well but what happens with AI in general still is from the zero to one right it goes it can it becomes generative that's why it's called gen ai so from one to two two to three it does a relatively good job from 
But from zero to one, like that initial ideation phase is often where a lot of these AI tools will fail, meaning it can't give you exactly or precisely what you're looking for. Um, so that's where kind of the human interaction will come into play. But you know, it's interesting because I've been working with AI for solid year, actually more, I would say about two years at this point, even before the release of ChatGPT. My mom, who I'm a caregiver for, who lives in this house that I bought for both of us, um, has been witnessing everything firsthand. And so instead of like being fearful of that, she's very interested. She finds mm. it really fascinating. And I'm really shocked by just how open-minded she is. In fact, the other day she was telling me, Faye, look at this comment. There's an artist who's saying, you know, AI art is crazy bad, is horrible. You know, I'm not going to swear on this episode. Mom's like, <laughs> I can tell. My mom's like, I can tell this is an artist commenting on AI art. She's like, I don't feel the same way. Um, well, you know, she knows she talks about the limitations um and you know ultra realistic but everything feels very generic and things like that um that the actual touch uses uh brush strokes the actual touch the imperfections of the paintings is kind of what people i think for sure will be what people are craving for soon after this so yeah the, the that that's a, that's an interesting way of putting it it's almost like the the human element is going to become the the premium uh, and the, and the quality that's the differentiator, whether it's a painting or a novel or a film, um, it will be interesting to see. However, how quickly AI is going to come to either mimic that or you know mm. who knows, maybe even replace it in in a lot of instances. And from an economic standpoint, as you well know, you know we were, we're just coming out of the summer of strikes with with writers and uh with with filmmakers where the issue of ai was was front and center when you're working with uh entrepreneurs who want to be media creators in a similar path that you were how do you make a distinction or a recommendation around what platform uh, not not necessarily platform by name, but you know what platform when I say podcast versus like YouTube is going to be most impactful for them to reach the audience that they want to reach. Yeah, I think a lot of this based on empathy has to do with who they are uh, as well, because there are people who are very resistant to videos who are really uncomfortable. I think most of us who have not done this will generally feel like we would be uncomfortable, but some people are really uncomfortable and resist resistant to that. Luckily, well, not luckily in the past few years, one thing we all learn is people have become extremely comfortable with being on camera. So I have had more conversations than ever before this to uh, with entrepreneurs that many of them are, you know, YouTube is their go-to channel. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you know, I know you're a podcaster or something I like, you know, I, I hate to break it to podcasters, the amount of analytics and business, business driven data and analytics for podcast content really just isn't there compared to YouTube. And, you know, recommendation engines are not quite there yet. You know, for instance, like Michael, if somebody's trying to listen to this type of content and they're on some other episode, you know, how is this episode being surfaced and is it surfaced well? What's the long tail? not just the famous podcasters. Well, the platforms, whether you look at Spotify or Apple from a UX perspective, it's just not really there. Mm -hmm. And so I would recommend for as much as possible, people consider YouTube. And of course, YouTube has been planning for this moment for a long time. And we produce a lot of content around YouTube podcasting. So it's a real thing. There are playlists you can mark as a podcast playlist on YouTube. And YouTube really is working very, very hard to drive podcast listeners and watchers to their platform. 
And is so, this essentially a a video version of the podcast that would be delivered, you know, on uh, uh, through Apple or through Spotify? Yeah. But, uh, so believe it or not, YouTube, first of all, from a requirement standpoint to say, we don't mind if this is a video podcast or audio only podcast. Uh, the only differentiator here is if it's an audio only podcast, you cannot upload an MP3 to YouTube. So you'll have to convert it to MP4s. There are a lot of AI tools who can help you do that very easily mm -hmm. with a cover art, you know, with waveforms, with the animations. So you will need to do that. But there's no strikes or, you know, issues where content being taken down if it's audio audio only mm -hmm. on and what what serves as the visual then if somebody's like yeah i'm cool with my podcast being on youtube but i don't want anybody to see me <laughs> are we looking yeah. at a logo or something for the entirety of the interview yeah, you know, we played around with so many different formats. The easiest way is to use your cover art, or you can use an image of the guest, or yep. if you're interviewing someone, it could be like collage of you and the other person. Mm -hmm. um, good news is, you know, with tools such as repurpose.io, for instance, you can just feed in your podcast RSS feed, and it's going to do all that work for you by, you know, it's going to basically suck in your entire RSS, RSS feed. You can have 300 episodes. Then you can choose to, like, batch upload 300 episodes all directly to YouTube, or you can set a schedule as well. You can say like once a week, you know, publish in one of my old episodes onto my YouTube channel in any order uh, of your choice. So I actually it's saw really earlier easy. today, I saw you doing a demo for an Adobe product uh, that helps <laughs> with that specific scheduling challenge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm also like an Adobe Express or Adobe Global Ambassador and working with that company to learn what the process is like and interacting with other creators. It's been such a blessing. It's, I seriously, I've always liked Adobe, but I, I was so shocked by how well organized that com a creator community is. Have you lost all of your, um, uh, the intimidation factor? Are there any resistance to, uh, to being front and center, uh, on video in, in, uh, YouTube? I'm going to say you must have, but I want to hear it from you. Yeah, I think I don't feel nervous when I'm in front of the camera because I'm just here by myself in my office. Right. Uh, it's a very different experience than standing in front of, I don't know, a TED audience or even like a, a company all hands meeting. It's I think it's a very different uh, experience delivering something live and in front of a live audience. I think it's really good training for anybody who wants to learn how to be a better presenter. Uh, I do watch myself pretty carefully during editing, however. With that said, I think that intimidation of, am I good enough? Is my content good enough? Am I going to lose watch time in the first 30 seconds? Um, that's I don't think that's ever going to go away, especially as you're stepping up your game. Um, it, it can still be very difficult, but I think I learned something in this particular part from Jordan Harbinger, uh, who's also a friend of mine, who said, you need to learn to rescue yourself in that moment, which means while you're recording, you're thinking, oh, this is crap. Like, I, it's not going to be good. I'm no good. I look bad, uh, <laughs> you know, and, you know, my hormone is playing up today. Whatever it is, my hair looks horrible. That's not going to help you create better content. So you kind of have to leave that behind, lock that outside of your recording studio and just keep pushing forward. Now, the last thing I will say about this part is I've been so blessed to have my, my producer, Herman. Um, and since 2016, who stepped in to help me, help me edit my po uh, podcast and later on is now my uh, YouTube producer, editor, and for a lot of our client work to have someone that you can hand the stuff to to say, I think I look horrible. This is probably not very good. And for him to turn that around in two days to be like, that's amazing. 
<laughs> I, I think I look really good in this video. So that is that is amazing. You you're not gonna find a partner like that immediately. You won't have the leverage when you first start your channel. So you have to remember to leave that fear factor um, outside, or, or just keep going anyway. Yeah, the value of that type of partnership can can really be important for a number of reasons. There's there's the technical skill, but also if you if you connect with the right co-producer or producer, they're going to help you bring your conversations and your product, uh, you know, in places that you may not have thought of. Mm. It couldn't be more true. I, I think all of many of us feel this way, that to see how other people interpret your story, having somebody edit your podcast even, and then get like three sound bites to the front of the episode, you go, oh my goodness, I, I had no idea. This is so profound. I I had cried many times listening to several episodes and then the beginning of this. And, and, and really it gives you meaning of like, wow, this work is really meaningful. Um, but sometimes I think on, onto that note is like we as creators, we don't always have a lot of, we have our self reflections, but we don't always get constant feedback from people. Mm -hmm. Like they could appear in DMs and emails and you may be thinking like, Michael, this is, I'm so grateful to you. And that means so much, but you're not going to get that all the time. So right. what is the uh, ammunition motivation to keep moving forward? So I think that this is where you have to look inwardly, which is really hard sometimes to sure. say, you know, why am I doing this? Like, mom, why are you painting this if you're not planning on selling it? What is yeah. the essence of this? And then I realized there's more meaning, more value to the work if you know you're not doing it for money. Exactly. Creation for the sake of creation. Yeah. Around the around the topic of your audience, what have you come to learn about any differences or similarities between the people that are, you know, hardcore uh, phase world podcast listeners versus hardcore phase world uh youtube viewers yeah you know the audience loyalty is something that a lot of creators are struggling with which makes understanding who these people are exactly quite difficult so i know that for instance there was a huge uh, transition of my audience between 2020 for what obviously happened then to 2022 i had an overwhelming amount of um, audience members, primarily women mm -hmm. who are trying to teach fitness and dance and things like that online because they were, I mean, gyms were closed. That's their livelihood. Many of them actually re rely on this to raise their family to, you know, it's a really big deal. So I helped a group of those folks, but I know so I they were coming that. to you. They were coming to you for instruction to make their own media. Yeah, it will. So to clarify, so they were watching a lot of my Zoom videos, how to mm. tutorials to make music, mic and things like that sync up because Zoom really is not designed to teach fitness videos. Uh, <laughs> interesting enough, right? Yeah. Not even close. So uh, I, I help people to have a setup, have then, you know, upgrade their setup to better cameras and microphones and later on how to create courses. So then create they can create passive incomes, how to have these live events and to have registration and payments because Zoom also had trouble managing the payment part as well. And there was a lot of interesting conversations and tools. And then I, and then I realized it was interesting after sort of like as we're transitioning out of the pandemic, more and more people want to teach online, which so many of the videos that I did and lessons I learned um, by myself was very transferable to a whole new audience who are speakers, hmm. 
authors, creators. Uh, I interact with a lot of creators who are trying to set up multi-camps or uh, teaching music as well as teaching like how to draw or art in general. Uh, we don't think about it, right? You want to see the instructions phase talking from different views, but you also want to have an overhead camera to see like how he's holding the pen, how he's drawing and be able to switch back and forth very easily. How so, elaborate is your camera setup? My camera is set up for YouTube or for like live stream? Both. Oh, okay. So currently uh, for my YouTube video, I have a, you know, this is a four-year-old Sony 6400 mirrorless camera. And, uh, you know, I have a pretty, I forgot the name of the lens already. I think it's called Sigma. And uh, for my uh, live stream or for my Zoom videos in general, I use a Logitech Brio. This is a 4K camera. I also recently uh, got this uh, camera from Elgato. This is their brand new, it's called the Facecam Pro, as you can see here. And a lot of creators really like this one. So I, I collaborate and I work with a lot of companies where I get a lot of these products. I can also test out and decide what works best. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, and my my lights, I have this lights, I think is really interesting. I should send you a picture of, I think back in 2020, I had these like huge lights or so like five inches from my face and I have to set it up every time where gradually I upgraded myself to having these Elgato key lights, ring lights, and I have like their pull up easily like collapsible uh, green screens as well. And I have this microphone is really fancy. It is the Newman microphone uh -huh. yeah uh, it's made in germany uh it's on a shock mount and i have this boom arm as well i think road road made it yeah mm -hmm. and this allows me to kind of move it around really quickly so this is my setup for even my a lot of these huge uh virtual webinars i've been running for like women leaders association and ceo club as well we're geeking out here on on technical equipment which is <laughs> which is really interesting to me how do you structure your day you create so much content and then you're also conducting these webinars and you're you're you know you're running these live events as a as a host as a moderator when you're looking at your day your week your month what's your methodology yeah so i follow a lot of productivity gurus however i find myself to be a lot less structured um, you know, I find maybe my stories is inspiring or not inspiring at all to some of your listeners. So for instance, I think number one, to know ourselves, uh, people say there's like, um, you're either like a lark personality or like an owl personality. I'm definitely an owl person. I work extremely well at night. I know that's a bad habit. Tim Ferriss reflected on that, like until three, three in the morning. So I, I work pretty well into like the 11 PM midnight where the house is quiet. People are not demanding of me. I, I can write like four articles. Um, so, uh, as, you know, as a result, I am someone who need plenty of sleep and I like to wake up without an alarm. So sometimes I wake up at 8 30, 9 o'clock, which is totally unrealistic for certain people, but that's my, that's kind of my my clock in general. Sure. I tend not to plan for any recording meetings, including things like this, before noon. Uh, I tend to kind of reserve those uh, for the afternoon because in the morning it allows me to have a really slow morning. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm not the get up at 6 a.m., you know, go to the gym, run, you know, write for four hours. I like my mornings to be really mellow. I uh, enjoy homemade meals with my mom. I always go for a walk after that. And I come back and probably do like one or two hours of, of work, creative work. Um, again, when you're, when you're taking these walks, I'm curious, are you listening to podcasts or music or are you taking the silent walk and letting the subconscious do its job? 
So it's interesting, My uh, someone I really admire, my friend uh, BJ Miller, uh, who's a doctor, said, hey, Faye, try to walk without listening to podcasts because mm-hmm. he knew I something I really enjoyed. I feel like, got to be productive and learn something new and I will cue them up, I'll download them prior. And uh, I realized that sometimes we all need that uh, I live in a beautiful area in Grafton here. So the nature scene is just amazing. You got like birds of every color. Uh, I live on a golf course. So to actually hear the sound of the wind and to observe and to open up your eyes without thinking about business monetization and sales is really, is really happening for me. And, right. and so most days I, I enjoy try to be, um, trying to just be at peace with not doing something like that will be my meditative experience i also work uh, i also walk uh together a lot with my partner and we tend to talk a lot about business but that's interesting to be talking about business without a computer screen and sure. without planning with a spreadsheet um i also like to thirdly i like to listen to music sometimes some hip-hop i also and sometimes zumba music listening to music in another language like spanish or uh, icelandic or something it's like very liberating yeah interesting right yeah Yeah. because you're not that part of your brain that that is you know simultaneously hearing and Mm -hmm. interpreting and you know particularly with music there's a lot of like memories that are being triggered or yeah. you know images and one of one of the great things about listening to either music uh, just music you know, uh, instru- instrumental uh, or something in a in a, in a language that you're that is not your native language um mm-hmm. is that you know your brain just sort of does that free association thing and yeah. that can always be interesting in terms of where that ends up yeah, exactly. And sometimes I, I, exactly, I don't speak Spanish at all, but sometimes listening to Spanish music is often very emotional with music, like triggers you to understanding it without understanding the words. That's right. kind of also fascinating to me. Those so. romance languages. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so do you still have that uh, running list of guests that you, that you have not yet spoken to, but you want to? We're literally speaking about this like an hour ago while I was walking. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I want to answer this question this way. We are a little over 350 episodes at this point. So my partner was asking me about like 350 episodes of the podcast. Yeah, podcast, 350 Mm -hmm. episodes of podcast. So part a lot of them are being live streamed also like cross-pollination uh, on my uh, YouTube channel as well. So, you know, 350-something. Um, you know, I really used to have, like, a running list to say, I want to talk to John Stewart. I want to talk to uh, Brene Brown. Like, a lot of these kind of expected names. But... Since I started working uh, with Women Leaders Association, I have about 35, 40 names right now who are the, you know, like Steve Wozniak, Mark Cuban, Ariana Huffington, Ben and Jerry, and I can just keep going. Like, mm-hmm. I have about 20, 30, 40 of these people, and they're just, they, they're going to just keep coming. And that kind of, I think, changed my perspective, what it's like to interview and interact with uh, celebrities or luminaries. Uh, I also interview Seth Godin. These are all heroes of mine. Um, and so I think I've changed my perspectives of like going after names uh, right. as opposed to focusing on stories. Like what, what is it? Um, wouldn't it be great? You know, Krista Tibbet does it so well. She interviews so many people that we have not heard of at all including people who never been interviewed other by other than by her they wouldn't be interviewed by anybody else i that's who i 
want to thrive to to become. But I think I need to be famous enough to have the level of impact as Krista. But I love her model. Yeah, yeah and in her case, you know, it's what's interesting is, and you're exactly right. She's talking to people that you know nobody's ever heard of, and yet the universality of what she is speaking to them about is really what comes through to to the listeners and 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 allows for that connection and i think mm-hmm. it's interesting the way you make that distinction between wanting to essentially have this running list of celebrity gets that can mm-hmm. that can be on your show versus kind of subject matter experts and mm-hmm. people that are i mean seth godin is a huge celebrity for the people that know him and they they number in the tens of millions yeah yeah, but, you know, so, so it's not all created equal in terms of a. There's a lot of different definitions in terms of a um, a, a prize guest or a dream guest to have. Yeah. So for if sure. somebody is listening to this podcast and they're really curious about you and your work, and and they themselves are either an aspiring media maker or they want to incorporate, uh, you know, more varieties of media into into what they bring to the world, is there? a path that you would recommend that they would take in terms of say they want to work with you uh, or they want to begin to just understand what the you know what the the best technology that they should be working with to help them get their uh, their offering into the world yeah that sounds great i think the distinction you just made is somebody has an existing offer or even a business that they're already thriving in and now they want to become a content creator the path is definitely the path is slightly different so if you're just getting started you this is a you know a whole new world to you i would recommend our academy content or all our free content on youtube face world uh is spelled as afas and frank e-i-s-w-o-r-l-d i'm chinese so face is spelled differently so all our youtube videos are completely free there's some path and playlists created there. If you want a more structured learning, we have a lot of free tutorials under FaceWorld Academy. So that would be more structured, whether you want to be better on Zooms and webinar, podcasting, YouTube, it's all there. Um, I would say for small businesses, you know, with a marketing budget who is maybe doing quite well, either on podcast or YouTube or a webinar. And now you kind of want to bring things together and work with an agency or production company uh, like ourselves. Uh, that would be finding me on faceworld.com and under services and products, you can see uh, some of the things that we have listed there and always welcome a conversation if you're not so sure which path you should go down on. I will make sure that all of those links are in the program notes for this podcast and as we share and promote it through our various social media channels. Fei Wu, thank you so much for your time and having mm-hmm. this conversation. I literally feel like I could go for another hour or so, but I want to be respectful of, <laughs> of your commitments. But this has been this has been great to hear your story. And, uh, you know, your enthusiasm is infectious, as is just your really just your 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 courage in taking on new challenges, whether that's the inclusion of a new technology or just another, a new media path. And uh, I've really enjoyed this chat. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. And please let me know how I can contribute and support you in the things you do. And I'll be sure to share this conversation with my audience too. That sounds great. All right. Be well. You too. 